Malcolm Kenyon is here. He is a writer, a cultural critic, a Twitter provocateur, a Marxist, I think, a Swede. Yeah, I've been hearing rumors to that effect, at least. There you go. And just generally a very interesting guy. Uh, you can find oh, his work you. in... Uh, yeah, hey, you know, we're complimenting right out right out the bat. Um, you can find his work in Compact, Unheard, and City Journal, among other places. Um, today we're going to discuss The New Gnostics, Malcolm's article for the autumn issue of City Journal's print magazine. The piece examines the new quasi-religions, as Malcolm calls them, that are taking shape on the internet. It's hard to overstate, Malcolm writes, how full today's internet is with itinerant prophets, holy fools, hustlers, fraudsters, and soothsayers. We're going to pick apart that uh, the implications of that intriguing statement, and then uh, I hope to get his thoughts on a few other topics. Welcome, right. listeners, to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. Malcolm, you're already launching us off hot. It's good to have you here. Yeah, uh, it's good to be here, and um, thanks so much for the invite. I think that like this particular um, essay of mine obviously garnered a lot of attention, and, and a lot of it quite negative. Um, I didn't intend this to be a, how do I put it, like a takedown or a polemic against like these, these environments on the internet, just something to sort of describe what's going on to, I guess you would say normal people in the US and elsewhere. Yeah, and, yeah, the normies. Yeah. And you've wandered into a pot. We, we tend to do sort of policy and regulation here, but every now and then I really like to get into an intellectual or philosophical or cultural topic. And you're perfect for that because I, I do think uh, you have covered a subject that's probably flying under the radar, even of many of our listeners who are generally pretty internet literate. So. It's good to have you here. Um, actually, I think some of the harshest criticism I saw, which I'll give you a chance to defend yourself, is that you've misused the word Gnostic. So we'll get to that. But um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you talk about these quasi faiths. I like that sentence about itinerant prophets and soothsayers and hucksters. Uh, just to make sure we get our listeners oriented here, you know, so who, who are you talking about? You know, what's going on on the Internet that became the subject of this piece? Well, I mean, I've been on the, like, a lot of millennials, sort of, I've seen, I didn't see the first sort of, like, Usenets and so on, but, I mean, I've been on the internet longer than, like, a lot of people, I guess, and uh, you really saw the germs of, of what I wrote about here, actually around 2007, 2008, coinciding with the Occupy Wall Street protests. And generally, sort of, at that time, um, the, the sort of social aspect of the internet was gathered around, like, forums. So you had um, pretty famous in their day, like, forums like Something Awful, for example. Um, but during the transition, like during the, the uh, great financial crisis, you saw this transition from these forums to sort of first like micro forums and then to Tumblr and then finally to like social media. And what you saw created was this sort of incredibly diverse um, 
cottage industry, um, like you know, you saw a lot of scams, you saw a lot of subcultures forming, and you know, subcultures had always formed on the internet, but this this was something fairly different, I would say. Um, and what you sort of see today, and what I intended to write about, was essentially like if you go onto Twitter, for example. Like um, and if you explore this, this what the people inside it call the sphere, like the online right wing dissident sphere, you will find like such an ecosystem filled with people selling um, protein powder. They're selling like a new sort of you know the hidden history of the Aryan race, or you know like we all descended from. Um, I don't know, like this and this Mongolian tribe, like founded the U.S. and like pay me money for my Substack to find out what this means for you. There's that um, guy who percolated like all the way up, like he he was a total um, internet cult figure, and then he ended up on Joe Rogan a lot, and now he's got a show on Netflix, being like, oh, the there was Adla you know Atlantis was real, and it's amazing the way some of that's actually bubbling up into mainstream culture. Oh yeah, yeah. Like so, so you have, you have a lot of like, um, like a lot of farment, I guess you could say, like a lot of intellectual farment, and and it's sort of there's no clear line of distinction between something that's like okay, the secret history of Atlantis and why this sort of uh, changes everything you've ever known about U.S. politics today. And then you have this sort of like you you really need to eat a lot of like raw liver and raw testicles and raw organ food because that's what they took from you like that's the secret to getting big. Um, and then you have people who say that like the the mysteries, or or rather like if you drink human breast milk while working out, like you will unlock some hidden potential that sort of the medical establishment has been keeping from you. And you know. All of this, you know, feminists used to say, like, the personal is political. But as I sort of say in the essay, at this point, like, the political has become personal. Because at this point, um, uh, there's a lot of sort of, um, there's a lot of acts that are, in a way, like, clearly something that only impacts yourself or your own body. But they're being um, sort of, retranscribed to be like immensely political like the feminists in the 60s 70s 80s said that stuff like okay who does the the housework like this is not just some sort of personal economic social relationship it's actually something that ties into uh, uh, the structure of um, of society basically so like who does the ho housework this is a question that impacts like a lot of things from, you know, how easy it is to hire and fire women to, you know, like the national GDP, whatever. Um, but now it's like, okay, well, if you don't touch receipts, because receipts have a bunch of chemicals that sort of um, neuter you, like that is in itself a precursor to the reawakening of the Aryan race or whatever. Or if you basically find a farmer who can sell you unpasteurized milk, like this is the, the the first step on the path to revolution or whatever restoration of 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 like the old ways.
Yeah. So um, <clears throat> Graham Hancock is the name of the guy I mentioned. And then also there's um, there was that bonkers Tucker Carlson special that oh, talked yeah. about, you know, canola oil and like putting red uh, light on your testicles. Yeah. It, it is amazing because some of these figures um, like Liver King has been in the news lately. Um, they are so popular, but kind of it's very much counterculture. It's it's very much below the awareness of, I think, again, to just say your average normie. And it's it's interesting because it, it does remind me of certain aspects of um, maybe earlier on in the 60s with, I don't know, like the beatniks where I wonder if this is something that actually very few people are aware of right now, but is the the tidal wave that is coming there's some big cultural movement and this is going to be in everybody's faces uh before long but then at the same time as you point out um there's no real collectiveness to it there's no real it's very scattered it's all over the place i don't know i guess maybe the 60s were that way too i wasn't around obviously um it it just seems to be a primal scream about some kind of spiritual emptiness in our current moment so where do you see it going uh, that's an interesting question actually i do i think it's gonna get i think it's gonna intensify honestly um there have been periods in history like this actually before it's one of the things that people don't appreciate about like the french revolution for example uh, if you think about like the 15, 20 years before the French Revolution, you had this immense ferment of like mysticism, occultism, new sort of scientific theories, new su- pseudoscientific theories. Like you had um, mesmerism, animal magnetism, like a lot of these things. And, and people were really into it. Like there was this period of like feverish activity, which I think like the... Um, the cultural critic uh, and very long-lived fellow that died not that long ago, Jacques Bersoon, basically said that a period of decadence is usually not a period where nothing happens. It's like a period of feverish activity. It's just that like, the culture can't really go anywhere. Like, Something is sort of blocking the progression of, of human society or like the human intellect. So everything just uh, like like a hamster on a wheel like th- the faster you run like you don't really get anywhere you just sort of get tired and uh, and angry and so i think that well given the sort of overall how do i put it like geopolitical economic social outlook but like all of this inflation um, all of these sort of international conflicts brewing, I think that like this is going to keep going, the sort of subcultural intellectual ferment until like something bigger shifts in, in our societies, which might not take that long, actually. I'm so glad you brought up Jacques uh, Barzun, who uh, he wrote a, an epic tome from yeah. dawn to decadence. Um, I think I've got the title right. Uh Ross Douthat recently had a book on decadence that picked up on Barzun and also on Baudrillard and the notion of cultural recycling. And I thought his line on internet culture, this aspect of internet culture being a piece of it, um, was pretty insightful. I actually have the quote here. He says, step inside the matrix of online political debate. And it feels like all of history is coming back. 
socialists and Marxists, again, Catholic monarchists and neo-pagans, again, fascists and national socialists, once again. And I think his point is that um, it, it's almost like a Francis Fukuyamian end of history thing where people want people who want change, people who've been disappointed by the system or are out on the fringes, they are looking for some kind of movement and nothing really substantive has yet formed in front of them and maybe can't. I don't know. I mean, on a long enough timeline, there's bound to be something new eventually. But for the moment, they're just spinning their wheels with the ideas that are already these sort of historical spent forces. And it's all just kind of a LARP. It's sort of directionless, lost, performative. Yeah, I, I would say I agree. I obviously agree with Dutat in the description of what's going on. I would I would forward a somewhat different interpretation of what this all means, however, in the sense that I don't think people are actually looking for, quote unquote, a movement. Uh, I don't really see, and, and, you know, as someone who is sort of part of, um, like in my, in my sort of offline life, I sort of help the Sweden Democrats from time to time here in Sweden, which is, you know, a fairly large, fairly important party in Swedish politics. There is not a lot of overlap between people who sort of are engaged on like the local or the national level in a political party like that and the people online or on Twitter who say, you know, I really want to be a part of a movement. Um, instead, what Dudhat is highlighting here is that like all of these things are being recycled as a sort of almost like a prop, as a, um, how do I put it? Like almost like magical totems in a way. If you think about like the, the sort of relevance of, you know, national socialism and, you know, flags with swastikas on them to like, you know, win popular office in the U.S. today. It wasn't very relevant in the 1930s and it certainly wasn't very relevant in the 1940s. And it's absolutely not something you're going to win an election to dog catcher today. So the people sort of flocking to you know, quote unquote, ironic uh, Nazism or something like they're not necessarily looking to get elected. And so to answer the question, well, what are they looking for then? Um, all of these old um, uh, ideologies, movements and so on, um, they sort of fill the same function in the narrative as like you, you mentioned Liver King earlier and for, for the Listener who doesn't know who that is, he was sort of an influencer and a supplement salesman. And uh, he basically had this narrative where he had sort of discovered the ancestral ways of, you know, the old Northmen or whatever the fuck. And it's like, if you eat raw liver, like Liver King, he had all of these pictures of, of himself sort of with bloody hands, you know, eating huge raw liver with like blood on his cheeks and stuff. Yeah, to get a sense like, of the pseudoscience here, by the way, I I do believe he said he, he had the kind of attitude of like, if you eat bull testicles, it makes your testicles more healthy, which is, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, uh, and his companion Soul Bra uh, definitely was into eating a lot of, you know, raw testicles on the principle of like attracts like. 
But the the thing is, so so Liver King was selling this narrative of we used to be like much more powerful. We we live in a sort of fallen world. We have been contaminated by modernity. But if you uh, sort of reconnect, and it's not just about eating liver, it's about reconnecting to the sort of power of the spirit world almost, then you can become as huge and muscular as me. But it turns out like uh, Liver King was, uh, to use a perhaps not very technical term, he was juicing. And he was juicing a lot. Like he was juicing on... out his eyeballs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like he was on so many steroids. I think like his his bill for like he he, he had like two or three injections a day. He spent like, like five thousand bucks or something. Yeah, it was like month. thousands of dollars a week on roids. It was just a total sham. Yeah, and, and it's like, okay, well, why couldn't Liver King then just say, you know, here's how you get big. You spend a couple of thousand dollars on roids, like me. I don't think the reason was just that, well, most people can't afford that. So, like, you can't really trick them. And it's not necessarily only, like, cynically, well, I need to sell supplements. So, I think that, like, people really wanted this this story of, like, they have lost something internal to themselves. And like the quest here was almost a mystical quest to rediscover this internal power that was in some ways like the birthright of, of everyone on Twitter who sort of followed Liver King. Like those muscles were their birthright, including, I don't know, a girlfriend and a good job and everything else that sort of uh, fell by the wayside uh, during the 2008 crisis. And here we had like the magical formula to return to what we were owed by universe. Like, is by, that where by the, the Gnosticism comes in? Because I, I kind of read you to just be saying like you were using Gnosticism as like a shorthand for secret knowledge. Sort of you could have oh, even just um, mystery cult and said, or is there a deeper connection you're trying to make? Yes. I mean like the Gnosticism, this has been like the locus of criticism here for, for the piece. The fact that I'm quote unquote misusing the term Gnosticism. And in some ways I do really sympathize with like the critics, even though some of them are clearly arguing, arguing in bad faith. But like this was kind of a problem in terms of striking a balance between being thorough with my definitions and you know, not boring normal people who don't necessarily want to, you know, like some of the books I've drawn some of this essay from, I'm thinking, for example, of Norman Kuhn's uh, The Pursuit of the Millennium. Like if you find a definition of Gnosticism or uh, religion or something like that in those pages, those definitions run longer than the entirety of my essay. And, you know, I guess I should have included, you know, one essay and then one essay length definition of Gnosticism in order to sort of avoid misunderstandings. But on the other hand, that would be a lot less readable. So what I sort of intended to um, catch with that term is not necessarily like that there's secret knowledge, even though this is part of the structure. It's but rather that like you have what I sort of just went through which is this idea of a world where um, 
at the outset, people are sort of uncontaminated by whatever, like in, in the classical sort of Christian or um, pagan version, you usually have this narrative where humans are part of a divine order, like we are basically living gods. And then something happens that cuts us off from the divine part of ourselves. So we're only living in this sort of gritty material reality of, you know, suffering, old age and death. But through this gnosis, this knowledge, this secret knowledge, uh, humans can sort of transcend their fallen status and return to a level of divinity. Um, and so you see a lot of these elements, like that's why Liver King really has to say, well, like this was part of you all along, like these huge muscles they were part of you all along until people stopped like realizing that we have to venerate the ancestors and so on and so on. Like um, this is not something new. This is not us inventing a new diet. This is you returning to your original state by buying my supplements, of course. Um, and you see this with like pretty much everyone in these, um, in these environments that like the, the, the point of it all, whether it's not touching receipts, whether it's, you know, shooting bottles of canola oil with a sniper rifle or something, um, it's not like this is something new that you add to yourself to make you better. This is you going to a car wash and washing off the grime of this, like, fallen material reality. Um, that is, like, the, the sort of... Um, the commonality, whether you're on the left or the right, or on Twitter or on Tumblr, like you will find some some variant of this narrative most of the time. Well, let me ask you uh, about that. The when I think of these people, I think of Mike Cernovich and his guerrilla mindset. In fact, he was probably out front of this movement with that because that was a few years back. Uh, you have Bronze Age pervert, you have raw egg nationalist and liver king. Yep. The, even just listing the names gives you sort of a flavor of, of what all this stuff is. But all of those people, although um, if I were to just say they're all right wing, some of them would would disagree with that um, and certainly would have reason to object that, you know, maybe they're not on an ideological mission. But it it's not unfair to say that those people form, I've seen this term elsewhere, sort of a right wing manosphere um, yeah. upholding sort of classic, a twisted version of classic masculinity. Uh, is there a left wing mirror image out there? Because if so, I'm actually you can educate me because I'm not even aware of it. What does that look like? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, it's a smorgasbord out there, my man. Um, generally, you will often find these things on Tumblr. And, you know, I haven't really been down in the weeds there uh, for a very long time. So I couldn't really tell you about like the latest developments. But like, you will find uh, stories of, you know, black people or hoteps like we were the original Egyptians. You will find various ideas about like uh, in the time before time, everyone was trans and then feudalism happened and, you know, being trans was made illegal. But like humans were made to be trans. Everyone was it like in the enlightened age before we all fell into sort of superstition like. There's a lot to choose from, and there's a ton of just 
various kinds of astrology, astronomy, um, kind of like, um, th there's even sort of almost a mirror image of, um, of like the most sort of toxic masculinity, uh, manosphere elements in like female dating strategy, which is like, if you find a scummiest pickup artist ever <clears throat> and just make him a woman, uh, that's pretty much female dating strategy. Uh, so, so yeah, there's a lot of to choose from. This is not a a uh, phenomenon that's limited to the right at all. And in fact, um, the right they're kind of like Johnny Come Latelys to a lot of this stuff in a way. So I, I like how the article ties things back to. Well, let me back up half a step. I, what does it mean to take pride in America? And as a modern Californian American, one thing I'm very aware of, and you seem aware of this too, uh, I don't, I, I mean, I'm a I'm patriotic. You know, I like the Declaration of Independence. I read books about Alexander Hamilton or whatever. Um, I like that old school patriotic stuff. I'll take my kids to a 4th of July parade. But I, I recognize that a key part of being America, American and what makes American uh, great is what Philip Roth called indigenous American berserk. Like Americans just aren't house trained. Like it's just a crazy country. Um, the example I always like to give is the Astor Place riot in the 19th century, where dozens of people died in a riot over who was the better Shakespearean actor. And like such a great mm -hmm. microcosm for just America. Um, and part of that sort of um, craziness that if you want to be a patriotic American, you really just shouldn't brace and understand it's part of the fabric of our nation uh, is these occasional uh, revivals, these big tent revivals that are partly religious. They're a great awakening. It's religious fervor, but it's also like the snake oil salesman can set up shop right outside. Yeah. There's hucksters. There's that whole thing. And in that regard, what you're describing uh, could be seen as just a continuity of the American spirit. Um, yeah. But obviously, you know, history rhymes at best. There seems to, you know, what is the internet in particular bringing to this equation? I mean, is it causing an extra fracturing of our culture? Like what, what's the, the, what makes this different and what is the internet adding to it? Yeah. Um, in the sort of, in the, um, original draft of the essay for city journal, my title as I worked on it was the social media millennium, actually not the new Gnostics. And with that title, I sort of wanted to highlight that like, You've had millenarianism and you've had post-millenarianism as part of revivals in the U.S. Uh, throughout, like, you know, the um, 17th or sort of the 18th and the 19th centuries. But what sort of the Internet does is that, like, you know, the millenarian impulse then moves to, like, these sort of microsects on, 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 online and... Um, that sort of accelerates things, but like the same human impulse is probably at, at the bottom of it all. But I would say, um, I would draw the, the listener's attention to a sort of aspect of contemporary culture that they might not have thought about very hard, which is, uh, I'm actually writing a, another essay, hopefully as a sort of almost kind of a sequel in a way, or, 
attacking this problem from another angle. And if you think about the the David Simon show, The Wire, as like most people should be aware of it, and and if they aren't, they should watch it because it's a quite quite a good show. But the in The Wire, David Simon really wanted to set out to sort of show what has happened to cities like Baltimore, you know, after sort of deindustrialization, and so like several seasons touch upon the um, various drug gangs in Baltimore, uh, you know, predominantly African-American drug gangs. But season two touches on like the white working class in Baltimore. And they're, you know, kind of screwed too. Um, because like the country has in some sense, like left them behind. There's no, there's no spot for them anymore. Well, um, the, interesting thing about like all of this ferment on the online like on twitter and so on is that what like the 1970s the oil crisis and then you know nafta the industrialization as like the final uh, um you know stab in the back in a way what that was to like the black underclass and the white working class of baltimore 2008 was to uh, the middle class of a lot of American urban centers um, in the sense that like this was when their like natural place in society started falling apart. This was when like what they were promised, what they were used to, what they came to expect, what their parents expected of them because their parents had sort of, you know, gone to college and gotten decent jobs and so on. Well, I mean, 2008 broke that. And just as, you know, once you can no longer work at like the Ford Motor Company or whatever, then you turn to hustling, which can involve selling drugs. It can involve like whatever. You just do whatever you can to uh, put food on the table. What you see on the internet is kind of like hustling for middle-class white people. There's even a term for it, which is grifting, which everyone accuses everyone else of doing. Ha, ha. Uh, but like you, people really don't really don't think of them as sort of equal. Like, you know, people know what hustling is. People know what the grifting is, but very few people sort of take a step back and look, aren't these just the same thing? Because they really are in a lot of ways. So not only do we have this religious impulse, but it's sort of mated to this um, this need to, you know, secure the bag, to hustle, to sort of do whatever it takes to take to return to what like they took from you, what you came to expect. Okay, so um, I want to sort of leave the article and get into that broader topic. Um which gets into larger economic forces and whatnot um, in a moment. But before I do that, one more sort of internet culture question for you, because you've been kind enough to wander into a, uh, a respectable podcast in the sense that uh, almost every guest I have on the show, if you look that person up on Twitter, uh, you're going to find their name. They're going to have an actual profile. It's going to be like, I am the policy, whatever council like me at, at insert, you know, swamp yeah. organization in dc um 
And you, uh, and feel free to tell listeners your Twitter account once I shut up and and leave them to it if you want. I mean, you have a very distinctive Twitter persona. You're very much uh, channeled into this culture. Uh, you do. I don't think you'll disagree with this, but you can. You you know, you do a lot of shit posting. Yes. Um, it's I I like your Twitter account. It's humorous, but it's like, for instance, I I couldn't get away with uh, having an alt account where I behave the way you do. Um, I am a, I am a member of the state bar of California. Right. Um, so what's up with that? So what, what's, what's the choice behind it? And, um, I'm curious about you because you seem right now to have one foot in that world and one foot in my world. It makes you very intriguing. Um, how do you navigate it? And, and yeah, just tell us about it. Well, I mean, here's the thing though, like the, this is actually a conscious choice on my part. And, you know, I'm kind of, I feel kind of like a wrestler sort of giving away the game here, like breaking Kaifabi or however you pronounce it. But like, there's actually sort of a fairly simple reason to why I uh, come across as a fundamentally fairly unserious person on, on Twitter. Even though I have the capacity as maybe, you know, hopefully the listener sort of surmises from this, I do have the capacity to be fairly serious in, in conversations. Well, here's the thing, though. The problem of the topic we've just discussed, all this sort of cargo cult, all this millenarianism, um, I am very much concerned with, like, avoiding becoming a target of, like, worship and, like, people trying to build, quote-unquote, a movement around one and so on because like you see people so desperate for that sort of stuff um and like the 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 issue here is just that what i want to sort of achieve is that people can read my ideas and say well you know i agree with this maybe i disagree with this and maybe this seems pretty profound and this seems pretty stupid but like i'll sort of deal with the ideas here. And then they don't really have to sort of develop this weird parasocial relationship to the guru or the prophet or whatever. Like I could realistically really try to sort of um, present myself as some sort of like Nick Fuentes or whatever. But I really don't. I I, I really want people to to to... Uh, um, sort of look at what I write and say, okay, this is pretty serious. I can work with these ideas, develop on them and so on. I don't need the person behind them. Interesting. Um, Well, let's move into some of those broader ideas. Um, You see, and you you hinted at this with your answer about the fallout of the 2008 crisis. I mean, you you see... um, a broadening divide between the rural population and what one might call the email class. Uh, We saw it certainly accelerate during the pandemic with uh, remote work. Um, You have suggested that that divide is the, the important divide. It's actually becoming more important than what you might consider a traditional old school left right divide, at least in the United States. Uh, and that it could actually get to the point where, quote, the system simply snaps. 
Yes. Um, do you expect that to happen? Uh, and I mean, what would that look like and how do you think it would play out? And maybe I should circle back and say, you should probably elaborate on that divide uh, at the outset. Well, I mean, the divide I'm talking about here, like at least a fairly large part of it intersects with the um, what I just said w would be my like next topic to write for or, or write on rather on, for City Journal, like the sort of the social and economic aspect of hustling, except for, you know, white middle class people who got rejected from Georgetown. Um, not to humble brag or whatever, but it's it's quite interesting. I was fairly early, like I was an early thinker proponent of these sort of ideas that there were was a fairly significant sort of divide between whatever we want to call them, like the transferiat, like the email class, PMCs, and like the rest of the economy, and that this gulf was widening. And when you I seem said to that, spot that, sorry to sorry to interrupt. You yeah. seem to spot that in seeing in your in your home country the way the government basically yes. creates like jobs programs for that Georgetown kid, whatever the Swedish equivalent is. Yes, and like when I started developing these ideas together with a couple of friends in like 2017, that was very much a novelty, and it was kind of a novelty in 2019, and then by 2020, people were sort of starting to take it seriously, but like with in 2022 with like the um takeover of twitter by elon musk and a bunch of other sort of very uh, examples that are very much in the news this became a very generalized idea and and you saw this how do you put it like convergent evolution people uh coming from completely different sort of intellectual backgrounds and so on like developing similar ideas and this this usually happens um if, uh, as we say in Sweden, if you have an idea whose time has come. Um, but the, the interesting thing with this sort of growing divide in terms of uh, how it hooks into this like online millenarianism, Gnosticism, like the search for what they took from you, the search for like the inner divinity that will sort of set you back to like you know uh, the way your ancestors lived whatever this has a very obvious like class dimension actually um and generally speaking the people involved in these movements tend to be sort of upper middle class so if you think about the Bronze Age pervert, for example, um, it's an open secret that this guy is some form of upper middle class immigrant from Romania who went to Harvard. And he was seen as a very gifted sort of scholar at Harvard. But I don't really know the details of like politics in academia, except that it's, it's quite... Um, the, the competition is growing harsher by the year. So for, for some reason, he found himself on the outside. Like there was no scholarly career waiting for him, which is why he became the Bronze Age pervert. And if you think about like um, the, the, the um, 
that sort of special by Tucker, I happen to know the identities of uh, um, at least two of those people, like those people with voice changers and, you know, muscular bodies, milking cows and so on. And without, you know, like a gentleman doesn't kiss and tell, so to speak. But uh, these people are people who went to some of the most elite prep schools in the U.S. I'll just leave it at that. Um, and, you know, this is a pattern that repeats itself. Uh, if you think about Richard Spencer, like the before he started hiling Trump, he actually tried to get a job at the American Conservative and sort of as, as someone who worked at uh, TAC at the time, uh, Spencer was a round peg in a square hole, uh, was the way they put it. So for whatever reason, like he didn't have a career waiting for him either, which is why he became this sort of um, fairly, you know, like this this Nazi pirate or whatever you want to call them. And then, like, there wasn't really a career waiting for him there. So now he's sort of trying to be uh, Joe Biden's most faithful soldier on, on Twitter. So, like, this, this sense of this, this sort of metaphysics uh, of, like, someone took something from me is replicated on a more, uh, how do we say, like, on a more basic primitive economic level because these people genuinely feel that like for some reason they are owed a career an upper middle class career that sort of never materialized and the reason it never materialized is like has a lot to do with you know the crash of 2008 so you're building around what's a pretty straightforward idea that uh downward mobility tends to radicalize people yes. uh, and potentially cause social unrest. You see that all over the place in history. Um, and in some of your articles, when you talk about the downward mobility of the email class, um, I do catch almost like a, a little bit of pity that uh, humans, you know, we all think we have agency and you're sort of observing that, look, you're you're subject to these social forces and you're, you're upset because of things that are both beyond your control and that you don't even really seem to understand, you know, the, the rage of the email class as, you know, things don't work out the way they want them to. Um, but I'm curious about you, you too. I mean, so you, um, my understanding is, correct me, you know, you're a self-professed Marxist. That is inherent, by definition, that makes one a radical in the modern Western world. Um, as we mentioned with your Twitter account, I don't mean this as an insult. Like it's pretty nihilistic. Like you're not like building up a program. Um, your articles tend to point at these cracks in society, um, which is fine. I, I read your work with great interest, but is there a positive program back there somewhere? I mean, what what is your um, what? Where do you see yourself politically? Oh, I mean, it's it's interesting that you would call me nihilistic, I guess. Well, I called your Twitter I mean, personality nihilistic, <laughs> but push well, back, I mean, sure. I mean, the interesting thing here is that like, I can be fairly unconcerned and very critical of all of these people trying to quote unquote, build a movement on Twitter because I am actually involved in uh, building a movement 
in real life. Uh, so I am sort of involved in various ways with like the Sweden Democrats, as I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, a real party that stands for elections. And then with a sort of, you know, smaller local populist party called the Örebro party. Um, and so, I mean, I get my meaning from there. I am certainly no nihilist. I am, if anything, a fairly, uh, I mean, a zealot in a way, and a, a fanatic in that I have a cause that I believe in and that I am willing to sacrifice quite a lot for. Um, and so my background, like I... That that pity you talk about, sure, it's there sometimes, at least, like when I'm having a good day, because like these people, yeah, I know where they come from. Like they, they belong to the same class as I do, in, in a sense. But that doesn't really prevent them from basically being parasites in society. Um, very unhealthy ones at that. Um, so, like, to, to sort of sum it up, I do have practical experience with, you know, doing things, um, building things. I don't, I, I certainly do not think that like, there's no point in anything. I am, if anything, on the polar opposite end of the spectrum. I think that like what we do or don't do and what we build, like that matters a great deal. Um, Maybe that doesn't really come through from my posting because I, as I said, like I, I kind of just shit post. Um, partly because you know, I'm an old time sort of forums uh, uh, poster, and like forums aren't really a thing in 2022. So you know, you go to uh, the 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 modern equivalent. But also, I could stop and you know be serious, but I don't necessarily. Um, like the 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 thing about sort of being involved in actual politics where you know you have constituents where you stand for election where people with names and addresses sort of vote for you and so on but like if you think to mix that world with the world of like pseudonyms and um, like people being you know anonymous frogs memeing the 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 next sort of uh Reichsführer Trump revolution like you you're just you're just kidding yourself um the like twitter certainly isn't really like i would for example never post like i do on facebook because facebook is like a, a social media platform i know it's like quite gosh to to even admit to be on facebook <laughs> <laughs> but that in itself tells you everything you need to know about like, you know, how, how little people think about these things, because like Facebook is the one social media network that is conducive to political work. Why? Because the networks on Facebook mirror the sort of networks you see in real life, which is, you know, uh, if you're on Facebook, your friends are often actually your friends and your family and so on. So ideas spread in the same way that like, you know, Christianity spread among the early Romans, um, which is, you know, through like social bonds. And so, you know, like for me, in terms of social media, Facebook is serious because like that's, 
that's actually conducive to um uh, like messaging and so on like if you want to to win an election in like this municipality or whatever if you spread a message on facebook to people living in that municipality the way connections work on facebook means that message will be spread to other people living in that municipality like if you try to start a movement on twitter and you send you know some sort of political message to hitler groiper 1488 that guy could be living in romania and his friends could be living in, you know, Arkansas, uh, you know, northern China and so on. Not necessarily people that are even, you know, legally allowed to vote for you. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like that's that's sort of the, the, the second reason. If you have a blue check and you are some sort of, you know, um, as, as the kids say, if you're a lib, meaning someone part of like this sort of PMC uh, intellectual cadre, the cadre classes, Wallerstein would put it. Um, like Twitter is useful for you. But like, you know, lower class people don't really use Twitter all that much. Like it's very class dependent. And so I don't really like the people, the people that sort of find Twitter really useful in that sort of sense are kind of people, if you uh, will excuse me a fairly archaic term here, uh, these are people I kind of see as quote-unquote class enemies in the sense that they have interests that often are completely opposed to the interests of, you know, a truck driver, for example. Well, let me uh, tap in right there to that comment. So, because... You have written elsewhere um, that the divorce between the left and the workers is now complete and irrevocable. Yes. And I think that's an interesting statement. That's a provocative statement. Um, and But it's funny because I I don't have any, I, I, I simultaneously agree with it, but it, it actually turns me back on you. Where does that leave you? And what is your, where does that leave you in the world of Adams? Forgetting for a moment your social media presence. Um, how are you navigating that divide? I mean, so essentially, like the party I am tied to, uh, and sort of help out now and then, the Örebro party, I guess you would say that, like, we have the analysis where it's like, these, these conflicts between, you know, PMCs, the transfer, like the email cost, whatever, like, uh, um, arose by any other name and so on and people who are tied into the physical economy like these are actual class conflicts um, which you saw with Brexit which you even saw with like um, Donald Trump winning in 2016 and so on and so the point here is to um, basically be a party that people can vote for that will actually defend the interests of people in the real economy against people who are essentially parasitical on them. Um, and I think that that is like a politics whose time has come. Um, so does that answer your question? Like, you know, I, 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 I'm not part of the left and, you know, the left doesn't really have much interest in, you know, people who sort of drive out propane tanks to 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 households so they don't freeze to death in the winter 
like they don't care. They care about people in the university towns. And so sort of my political calling, I guess you could call it, would be to say that, well, okay, well, then I'm not going to care about the people in the university town. I'm going to care about the people, you know, uh, the truckers ferrying out propane to, you know, elderly people so they don't freeze to death. It's fascinating what this makes me think of. Um, James Buchanan, he's the creator of the critique of the professional managerial class and of bureaucracy in this country. And um, so I apologize if I'm breaking out someone and aiming it at you that you're not familiar with his work, but you're describing to me almost like a left-wing James Buchanan outlook, which is fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, even though someone working in Buchanan's time, um, like things have kind of things have kind of changed over over the centuries, let's just say, uh, in the sense that even in Marx's time, you know, like a third of a percent of people went to college or something. Um, and so like this class, um, as, as you know, a certain, uh, a certain sort of uh, a Soviet leader once said, like, quantity has a quality all of its own. So once you get to a point where, like, you have uh, 40% of the population going to college and then demanding a, uh, a job commensurate to their elite status, quote-unquote, like, that is fundamentally different from, you know, earlier historical uh, crises where you might have, like, half of a percent of, of college students in Russia uh, sort of being out of work because like the bureaucracy can't can't really uh, employ them or you know the similar situation you had in 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 uh, the austrian empire in 1848 you had a lot of people who went to university and then there was no government job waiting for them so this is like, the old they... uh, P- peter tertian overproduction of elites yes yes and so you know like the like the it, it was always pretty easy to see because like you know history it might not repeat but it rhymes and there are certain sort of like broader patterns that are replicated over time so like a critique of of bureaucracy a lot of it still holds true and a lot of it held true even in the ancient world um and, you know, the warnings from the founding fathers about like, okay, well, if you run a military empire, certain things are going to happen. Like, nothing much has changed in that sense. Like, uh, what they thought would happen has indeed happened to the US today, even though, you know, the empire is being run uh, internationally and you have like computers and airplanes and so on. So I guess to sum it up, yeah, sure. Like, I do have a... I do have a critique of bureaucracy and it's not necessarily very newfangled. It's just applying fairly basic principles on, you know, the problem in front of us. But then again, like Marx himself, he did not invent class analysis. He did not invent the idea that, you know, classes matter. Like this was common knowledge in the earliest day of the Roman Republic. So, you know, I apologize. I think this is suddenly hitting me. You, 
I believe you'd actually discussed James Buchanan in an earlier City Journal essay, and maybe that's why it was bouncing around in the back of my head. So, of course, you're familiar with with him. Um, oh, you mean James Burnham? Uh, I mix them up. Am I getting? Am I uh, here? Live, uh, live search. Yeah, I, I've written about James Burnham in in um, in in Compact. Yes, this is such a great. Um... This is such a great uh, Chuck Klosterman as a book where he talks about the way that like um, if you were an early 20th century American, you could name 20 marching band uh, composers. And to us, it's all um, compressed down into uh, John yeah. Philip Sousa and these thinkers who had these rich outputs and were a huge deal in their day. And then here I am butchering it uh, because ev everybody is destined to be forgotten on a long enough timeline. Yes, the managerial revolution. I apologize, listeners. Yeah. I, I meant James Burnham. Um, there is a uh, an author I'm a, a huge fan of. His name's Paul Kingsnorth. Um, and he kind of looks at this situation, the stuff we've been talking about, and he interprets it through the lens of the triumph of what he calls the machine, sort of. The, the reason that we get people who are this email class, who I say that like I'm not one of them, um, who, as you joke, think that the food is grown in the grocery store, um, is because of this advance of technology that connects in with globalization and that ultimately it, if we don't fight that force, it's kind of inevitable. And it's actually a lot of the similar themes to what we were talking about with sort of these online Gnostics, but far more serious. He is absolutely earnest. Guy lives out in like rural Ireland. Uh, as far as I can tell, he's got nothing to sell, but his the words he types out on his battered keyboard, like he doesn't even have like a functioning toilet. Um, he uses a, like a bucket and a, and a compost pile. Um, I believe he converted to like the Romanian Orthodox Church. <laughs> Everybody's grasping here. I'm I'm just throwing that at you. I'm curious what you think about that because what he's basically saying is that your your project of of helping the people who actually deliver the goods in society really requires a much deeper sort of rebellion against what you might call the technium. Yeah, I, I I, mean, it's possible. It's certainly possible. I won't dismiss that idea out of hand. Though what I would say, not necessarily as a counter argument, but like as a, uh, to, to complicate that narrative, I guess you could call it, is that even in an, technologically static society you will over time see this uh, growth of parasitism economic parasitism not because it's necessary but because it's nice so i'll give a concrete example of this like the um the swedish mining concern owned uh, in large parts by the state elko abia um they have an iron mine up in northern Sweden in the town of Kiruna, and they were hoping to open up a new ore vein. And in order to do so, they have to uh, apply for a permit because you can't open up like a new like mine shaft without having a permit first. Um, and by their estimation, like the application process cost them 
a hundred million crowns, which uh, by the standards of the time was like $11 million. Uh, this application is rejected because as part of the like a legal step in the application process, or you basically have to hold a meeting in the town to inform uh, sort of stakeholders about like, okay, so we're opening up this new mine shaft. This is like how it's going to impact you. Well, uh, Elko AB, they committed a cardinal sin here. They invited too many people. So rather than just say, okay, well, if you own a store in this, this quarter, you can come. But if you don't, like we're going to turn you away at the door. They said, well, okay, uh, even if you don't own like a store in this quarter and, and you're really interested in, in learning about like our mining operations, feel free to come. This was rejected by sort of the, the um, special like Miljödomstolar, which basically like uh, uh, green courts. And they had to do the application all over again. You know, whoopee, $11 million uh, uh, pay that stuff all over again because you told, you know, some kindergarten teacher that if she really wanted to come and listen, she could. This is not a technological issue. The issue here is that you have a lot of people for whom like this application process, like those $11 million, they're going somewhere. They, they're feathering the nests. They're buying, you know, granite countertops in, in soil now or whatever. And if you don't have that process, like how are people going to make money? Um, and, you know, like Donald Trump, when he ran his campaign in 2016, he ran a fairly cheap campaign. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing if you're a political consultant, right? Like if you if if Donald Trump came up with a way uh, to you know win the presidency, spending ten dollars, like that man would be assassinated in five minutes because you know spending ten dollars to win the presidency that's like several billion dollars that you know will no longer furnish people with jobs. And and so like this is this is not necessarily a technological thing. Um, okay, now we are firmly in James Buchanan territory, wandering into things like public choice theory, um, yeah. and the the interests of of uh, government actors and and everyone else. Um, Malcolm, this has been so great. I really appreciate your coming on. Um, you've already previewed an idea for your follow up City Journal article, but. Um, what else are you you working on? Please feel free to preview for us, uh, you know, whatever's on your mind or upcoming projects. Well, I mean, I have a couple of uh, irons in the fire, I guess. Um, I'm really interested in, in, in sort of writing a bit more about like this entire, um, like the entire sort of like online phenomena that like people really don't understand that the uh, um, like getting into the weeds about like what actually goes on in, in all of these subcultures on the internet and why. And so um, after I sort of tackle the economics of, of you know, middle class hustling, grifting, 
Uh, I kind of want to tackle the sort of emotional dimension because it really hit me. Like I I was sort of uh, in the middle of a massive uh, Twitter uh, controversy recently where it's like, I basically said, it's okay to be American. And this caused a lot of like, you know, like rage is, is the only way to put it. Um, I, because, I like, saw that, yes, bubbling up from the darkest corners of the Twitter sphere. Yeah, and you know, like, uh, uh, it's it's quite interesting because, like, people were sort of denouncing me, calling me the N-word, telling me they were going to lynch me, uh, that, like, I deserve to be killed, stuff like that. And, you know, all I said was, like, American culture exists, and it's pretty great, and it's okay to be American. And so, like, the there was obviously something going on there because if someone told me i don't know like if uh, a raging i don't know like whatever like someone i didn't like very much said to me you know malcolm sweden has a lot of problems but fundamentally it's a pretty great place right like sweden has a lot of good things you know there are great parts of the culture and i wish all swedes the best that would not necessarily make me, you know, boil over with rage, even if I didn't like the guy. Um, and so, like, there's so much, like, politics of resentment. Because uh, after they told me they were going to hang me, like, turn me into an Alabama tree ornament, like, all of these people said, no, you know, you can't say that Americans are great. Like, I, I really hate Americans. Like, they they don't understand what's at stake. Like they don't appreciate our movement and so on. Like Americans are the worst trailer trash, you know, white garbage and so on. And it's, it's like, um, this is not necessarily something super new, but like a lot of the time people who see themselves at the vanguard of a movement or whatever, they're almost always driven by a deep sense of alienation from the people they purport to lead and often like that alienation then turns into resentment and then even hatred of of like your own kin and that is kind of a thing that um people don't really appreciate how much of say like the dissident right but also in some sense like the the radical left is just driven by that like loading of just like perfectly ordinary decent people well we'll have to leave it there i'm looking forward to that one into all the work you um put out in the future uh listeners check out malcolm kayun our guest at compact at city journal um and elsewhere yep if you want, I, I, you can promote your Twitter account. I, we, we've talked to, I believe, what is it? Anglo Respector 21K, something like that? Yeah, something like that. I mean, if you know, uh, you know, but it's like, all right, you, all you, right. you shouldn't you shouldn't really expose yourself to that uh, unless you have a good reason to. Fair enough. Okay. Um, thank you so much, Malcolm. This yeah, has been the Tech you. Policy Podcast. I am Corbin Barthold. If you enjoy conversations like this one, and I think this one's been a banger, uh, give us that five-star rating wherever you listen. And while you go do that, I will get busy starting to prepare the next one. 
Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org. <laughs>